I'm going to invite uh, now Justin Joseph and Andrew Berberian uh, to the stage. The three of us, for the, for the most part, although there's some others involved, make up the preaching team here at Mount Hope in Belmont. And we kept saying to ourselves, how do we make sure that we give a great Easter sermon? And we came up with the conclusion that if all three of us speak, there's a better chance that one of us will actually give you a decent sermon this morning. So we're playing the odds a little bit uh, with you today. Uh, I hope that's all right. No, no exchanging of money involved, though, right? Good, good. We're actually going to spend some time here in, in God's Word, and we're going to be in John chapter 16. And if you'd like to turn in your Bible to John chapter 16, there's Bibles in, in the seats in front of you, or you're welcome to open up that Bible app on your phone or whatever it is you use. When you open up to John chapter 16, it's kind of an odd chapter to be in, it might seem, because you're not going to read anything in John chapter 16 about the death of Jesus. You're not going to read anything in John chapter 16 about the empty tomb, and yet we're going to land here uh, because I think Jesus says something in this chapter that is really worth reflecting on. We're going to talk about three days that changed everything. And uh, we're going to get to Friday, but before we get to those three days, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, I actually want to take you back to Thursday. In John chapter 16, we're at Thursday. If you were with us at our Good Friday service, we talked about this a little bit when we celebrated communion together. That Jesus and his disciples on Thursday, they got together to celebrate the Passover meal. And they were together in Jerusalem. And Passover is one of those festivals, one of those feasts that, of course, is still an important part of the Jewish calendar in which Jewish people get together to worship God and to remember the miraculous work that God did in leading his people, the Israelites, out of slavery in Egypt thousands of years ago. And even if you're not very familiar with church, maybe you're familiar with that story with Moses and the Ten Commandments and leading the people away from Pharaoh and out into the wilderness. Passover is a time to remember what God had done among the people. And so getting together with Jesus for Passover was a very normal thing to do. In fact, for over the three years, the disciples and Jesus had eaten many meals together and they get together on this Thursday. And I'm sure that for the disciples, they probably felt like it was their normal routine. They're going to eat a meal with Jesus. They're going to celebrate Passover together. But when they walked into that room, it became clear pretty quickly that this meal with Jesus was going to be different than any meal they had eaten before. When they walked into the room before the meal even began, John tells us, Jesus did something very unexpected. He stood up and he, he took off his outer garment, his outer coat, and he tied a towel around his waist and he got down on his hands and knees and he did the job of what the lowliest servant in the room would normally do. And he washed his disciples' feet. And I don't know what exactly it might look like at the end of a day through the city of Jerusalem what the sandaled feet of the disciples must have looked like at that point. But this was not work that the rabbi in the room would do. In fact, some of the disciples had a big problem with it. Peter said, no way are you washing my feet, Jesus. 
And Jesus said, no, Peter, this is necessary for me to do this. And after he did that work and the, the meal began, Jesus started saying things that he had never said to them before. He said, one of you is going to betray me. And it became very clear quickly that he was speaking to Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, but it wasn't clear at all what that betrayal looked like or meant. He told his disciples, just like I've loved you in washing your feet, so you also should start to love one another just in this way. And then Peter, he spoke up again. Peter loves to speak out a turn. And Peter said, I promise you, Jesus, I'm willing to die for you. And Jesus looked at Peter and said, Peter, by the time the sun rises tomorrow, you're going to have denied that you even knew me three times. And then he starts telling his disciples that it's time for him to go and be with the father. And the disciples start to ask questions. What do you mean? Where are you going? And Philip said, tell us the way. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. And he told them that he is the true vine and they're the branches and that they're to remain in him and that he's going to leave, but he's going to send the Holy Spirit who will be their helper. And in John chapter 16, 16, in the middle of this discussion, Jesus says these words. In a little while, you will see me no more. Then after a little while, you will see me. I've always understood those words. In a little while, you will see me no more. And then after a little while, you will see me. I've always understood those words to mean that eventually Jesus is going to go back to heaven. And then it's going to be a long period of time in which we are still in. And eventually he's going to come back. But I can't help but wonder in that moment, looking his disciples in the eyes, if there's part of this in which Jesus means in a little while tomorrow, you're not going to see me. But then after a little while on Sunday, you'll see me again. Jesus tells them more about his love for them and the father's love for them. And the disciples together affirm their belief in Jesus in this meal. And Jesus says this to his disciples. He says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. In this world you will have trouble. There is no possible way the disciples knew what that meant. You know that moment where everything's perfect right before it all goes wrong? You know that moment in life, the calm before the storm? I think the disciples were in that moment. I mean, everything was perfect. Jesus was saying things that he had never said before. It was a new level of teaching, a new level of belief from the disciples sitting in that room, celebrating the Passover, being closer to Christ than ever before. And yet in this world, you will have trouble was about to become very real to the disciples. This Friday that we call Good Friday was going to feel a little bit different to them. 
Just a couple of days ago, I picked up my son. He's seven years old. He went to a little flag football practice for an hour and I picked him up and we were driving home and it was just him and I in the car. And he was way back in the third row of our SUV and I was driving in the front seat. And I heard this voice from the back. He said, dad, are we going to church tonight? And I said, yeah, we're going to church tonight. It's good Friday. And then there was quiet for a little bit. And all of a sudden I heard him say, that makes no sense. <laughs> I said, what do you mean it makes no sense? Well, it's Good Friday. We're going to go to church. And he said, no, it makes sense we'd go to church. It doesn't make sense that it'd be called Good Friday. He said, we should call it Bad Friday. I said, well, it's not a bad thought. It's Good Friday for us in hindsight. But yeah, for the disciples, it was a bad Friday. It was a Friday when everything came crashing down. It was a Friday of disillusionment. They followed Jesus out of that room to a garden. Jesus prayed. And there again was Judas Iscariot. But this time, with Roman guards, they arrested Jesus. Peter denied him. Peter denied again. And again. They watched as Jesus went on trial and they listened to the crowds scream, crucify him. And then they listened to Jesus scream in agony as the whips ripped the flesh off his body and he was nailed to the cross. And all of a sudden, everything that they knew and everything they believed came undone. And I can't help but wonder if that thought, that phrase went through their mind, in, the, in this world, you will have trouble. The apostles knew trouble in that moment. Jesus says that phrase, and you and I know it's true, don't we? If there's one thing that's true that Jesus says, it's this. In this world, you will have trouble. We understand trouble. And every day you look at the news and you see trouble. And you see it around the world. You see it in the war in Ukraine. You see it in all the other unrest that happens around the world. You see it in our own society with the injustices that take place and how treat, people treat one another. But you see it in your own life too. It's the, in the diagnosis that happens. It's in the unexpected death that occurs. It's in the betrayal. It's in the affair. It's in the broken friendships. It's in the hurtful comments that people say. It's in the financial messes that we find ourselves in. I mean, if there's one thing that we know, it's trouble. And I don't know if there's anything else in this world that causes us to question whether or not Jesus is who he says he is than trouble. In fact, some of you in this room, you're right on the brink of walking away from this whole thing because of trouble in your life. And some of you, this is the reason you don't believe. Because you wonder, how can there be trouble? And how can there be God? I was reading an article recently, an interview with, with Tim Keller. And Tim Keller, for decades, has been a preacher and a pastor and an author, mostly in New York City. A couple of years ago, he was diagnosed with uh, stage four pancreatic cancer at 69 years old. And Tim Keller in this interview said, there's nothing like 
a doctor walking into the room and saying, I'm sorry, Mr. Keller, but you have a disease that's going to kill you. He said, after all my years of preaching and teaching and writing, I had some questions for God. Nothing will make you question God like trouble. But he said, after he walked through disbelief and after he walked through a little bit of anger and after he walked through questioning God and he came to a place of acceptance, he realized something. He said, I realized you can't have resurrection without death. And that's where Friday ends and Saturday begins. Can you imagine what it would have been like the next morning? Your savior, the one that you've given your life to follow, has been brutally executed on a cross and buried in a tomb. And now somehow you're supposed to carry on that next day. How many of you have gotten bad news on one day and had to deal with it the next day? And you know what that feels like. That's Saturday. The Saturday after Christ goes to the cross must have been one of the loneliest and most troubling days in all of history. If we could put ourselves in the shoes of those disciples that day, imagine what it felt like. They had given their lives to follow this teacher. And I want us to understand what a disciple would have been. It would have been someone who sacrificed livelihood and income and relationships and status because they believed that this teacher was worth following because there's this hope of one day becoming that teacher. And so every egg was put into this one basket to follow this one man. And there they watched in absolute stunning agony as he is dying on a cross. And they're thinking to themselves, maybe we got all of this wrong. Maybe we were wrong about him. Maybe we're wrong about everything we were thinking was going to happen. Maybe we were completely wrong. And it's disillusionment and worry and frustration and sadness all come together in this one day called Saturday. In fact, the Bible tells us a lot about Friday. It tells us a whole lot about Sunday, but it tells us almost nothing about Saturday. There's one verse in the Gospel of Luke that simply says, and on the Sabbath day they rested as the commandment, or as, as it was commanded. That's it. What would that rest have felt like? What would that day have been like to know everything we thought was going to happen didn't happen? Now, while the Bible doesn't speak a lot about that Saturday, I think you and I, we can probably relate more to Saturday than we can to Friday and Sunday sometimes in our lives. The day between, the season in between, the period of silence and waiting where nothing good is really happening, where you are thinking about what happened and you're thinking what will happen. You're stuck somewhere in the middle and that's what Saturday is. It's the day of trouble and then the day of even more trouble because I don't know what's going to happen next. Some of us right now are, are living through a Saturday in our lives, a season where we just don't know. A season of silence, a season of waiting, a season of disillusionment and frustration, a season of wondering, God, where are you? Weren't you supposed to do more than this? Just die and go into a tomb? Saturday is filled with silence and wondering and waiting. 
This is what we read in John 16, 33. It says, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. How do you take heart on Saturday? How do you find courage and hope in the middle of the worst defeat that you could have ever imagined? How do you take heart on the day in between, in the season of hopelessness and anguish? How do you take heart? Because I think what we do is often what the disciples may have been doing. We wait. But we wait the same way that we wait for just about anything in life. We wait and we wonder. I wonder if something good will come from this. We wait and we wonder. How many of you, when you come to a red light that hasn't turned green, when you expected it to turn green, start to look around a little bit? Who's watching me? I'm going to take matters into my own hands because I can't wait anymore. You wait and you wonder. You go to a restaurant, they hand you a buzzer and they say, your table will be ready in 15 minutes and an hour later that thing hasn't gone off yet. And you wait and you wonder when will our table be ready. You go to the doctor's office and they tell you to wait in this lobby and then they tell you to wait and wonder in that next little room where they wait, make you wait even longer. And it's waiting and wondering. And so often that's what we do when it comes to the Saturdays of our lives. We wait and we wonder, God, are you there? Jesus, are you real? God, can you answer me? Can you fix my problem that I'm going through right now? We wait and we wonder. But scripture teaches us about a very different kind of waiting. It's called waiting on the Lord. It's the reason why Jesus can say, but take heart. Because waiting on the Lord is different from waiting and wondering. Waiting on the Lord is waiting with eager anticipation that he is still working, that he's still moving, that he's still at work in your life and my life. It's this eager anticipation. There's a verse in Psalm 27 that says like this, be strong, take heart, and wait upon the Lord. Isaiah says like this, that they who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. That verse literally means they who hope in the Lord shall renew their strength. But if we're honest, Saturday is the hardest day to wait upon the Lord, to believe that he is at work, that he's doing something. Do you know why Jesus tells the disciples, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart? Because he wants them to know something very simple, that even though it seems hopeless to you on Saturday, I'm still at work. I'm still doing something. That work does not end even though you don't see me in this moment. That work just doesn't stop right then. Henry Nouwen's a famous author and writer. He writes about how at one point in his life, he became good friends with a family that were trapeze artists that were actually performing in a circus. And he says like this, that they would often tell him that the, the trapeze artist who twirls off of the bar and starts to twirl in the air, that artist gets all of the credit and all of the glory. And on the other side, there's one other trapeze artist that's just going back and forth, and it can often feel like that one's not doing any work, that they're just going back and forth. But this family would often tell Henry Nouwen that the hero is not the person who's aimlessly tumbling. The hero is the person who seems like they're not doing any work because they're actually timing their work perfectly to catch the other person at the right time. This is the good news of Saturday. 
is that even when it feels like Christ has gone, he's dead and no longer part of my life, that he is still at work. And that's the certainty, the surety of my life. The psalmist says like this in Psalm 10, why, O Lord, are you so far off? And that's Saturday. God, why are you not answering my prayer? God, how come my family situation is still the way it is? Why is my work situation the way it is? Why is nothing working out the way I thought it would? Saturday is filled with hopelessness and anguish and doubt. But this morning, you and I have this incredible promise to take heart because he is still working in the middle of the silence. And so Saturday ends... But Saturday ends with this reminder to take heart because he's still at work, because Sunday's about to come. And I wonder at what point these words float back through the minds of his followers. On Thursday, he said, in this world, you'll have trouble, but take heart because I have overcome the world. And I wonder if it entered the mind of Mary and as she and some of the other women got up before the sun rose on Sunday and filled their arms with spices because when Jesus died on Friday, there was only a few hours of daylight left uh, and they had to rush this burial of Jesus. They didn't give him a a proper burial. And so these women go to to give him a proper anointing before um, they, they leave his body. And the scripture actually tells us that they spend the whole walk over there Uh, talking with each other, figuring out how in the world they're going to move the stone away um, from the entrance of the tomb so that they can anoint Jesus' body. And I wonder if it enters Mary's mind as she turns the corner and there's just a little bit of daylight uh, coming up off the horizon and she can see down the way that the stone is gone. And actually, if you look in the Gospel of John, it's, it's not just that the stone has been rolled back up. If, we, if you know about how these tombs were set up, the stone was kind of on this little track and they would kind of just roll it down and it would seal in place. But the stone was actually pushed off the track as if somebody inside had, had, had gone against the stone to knock it down. I wonder if it entered her mind. I have overcome the world. And she rushes back, wakes up all the other disciples, says, tells, her, tells them what she saw. And I wonder if it enters Peter's mind or John's mind as they literally race each other to the tomb. And I love the gospel of John because he can't help but point out when he's writing this story that he beat Peter. He's like, we both took off. Peter actually had a head start. I let him have a head start, but I beat him. I got there first. And I wonder if it enters their mind as they see for themselves that Jesus is not there anymore. He's no longer in the tomb. I wonder if it enters the mind of any of the disciples later that afternoon. They, they spent the whole day locked in the room, locked in the same room where they were just a few days earlier with Jesus, eating, having a great meal. Um, Jesus telling them all these things they didn't really understand. He says those words and they're in that same room, just locked in hiding because rumors have been circling in the city. Some, Jesus is gone. The tomb, the, the tomb has been opened. He, what happened? And their heads are swimming with thoughts. You see, they had just watched their rabbi, their teacher, the one that they left everything for, the one they believed was actually the son of God who had come down to earth as the Messiah to rescue them. They watched him die. A humiliating and agonizing, brutal death on a cross. 
And they spent all day Saturday wondering if they had wasted their entire lives. If this whole God thing was just a waste of time and they had nothing left. And they start off Sunday much in the same place. A little confused because, because Jesus is, is no longer there, but it's not until the evening where the unthinkable happens. Jesus, in, even though they're locked in a room, they've got the doors barred tight, Jesus appears. He just walks through the wall and he says, here I am, guys, I'm back. I told you I was gonna be gone for a little while, I'm back. And they are stunned. They, 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 they don't know what to do with it and they think maybe he's a ghost, maybe he's some kind of imposter. He says, calm down, guys, calm down, it's me. Don't be afraid. Here, look, you can, you can feel the holes in my hands where the nails went through. You can, if you want, you can put your hand into my side where the Roman guard drove his spear into my body to make sure that I was dead. And by the way, it's been a little while since I've had anything to eat. I'm kind of hungry. You got anything here? And they're sitting around this table, the same table, watching Jesus eat, listening to him talk. And at some point, the light bulb goes on and it clicks. He said this was all going to happen. He, he called his shot with all of this. He said, this was, he said he was going to die. He said he was going to be buried. He said he was going to come back again. In those words, I have overcome the world, come rushing back through. And he says this, this phrase, and, and I, I don't know about you, but I, I wondered he says this on Thursday, right? He says this phrase, I have overcome the world on Thursday, but he says it in the, this past tense, right? But, you know, the, the, big, the big event hasn't quite happened yet. It's still a couple days, it's still a day away, two days away. And so how, you know, why is he saying that he's already done it? Like nobody says, I won the World Series before uh, they actually secured that victory, that final victory. And as I looked into it, Jesus is saying something a little bit unique here. He's not using the simple past tense in the Greek language, which is what the, the New Testament is written in. He's actually using a tense called the perfect tense. And this is what the perfect tense indicates. You use the perfect tense about an action that is set in stone that has long-lasting implications. When something happens that's set in stone and has long-lasting implications, you use the perfect tense. And just about every other time that it's used in the Bible, it's used about something that has already happened because the past is set in stone. And if it has long-lasting implications, you have a good opportunity to use the perfect tense. But Jesus here says it about something that will happen, about something that has not yet happened. And by using the perfect tense, he's saying, this is as good as done. You can bet on it. You can, you can build your faith on this. I have overcome the world. It's going to happen. And Peter, about a month and a half later, who gets filled with the Holy Spirit, supernaturally just takes over him. The, the, he and the other apostles are just, are just preaching the word. A crowd gathers and the Holy Spirit gives him these words to say to the crowd as, as he's talking about Jesus. He says, Jesus rose from the grave because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. It was impossible for death to keep his hold on him. Jesus' resurrection was in the plan from the very beginning. And that's how he can say before it all happens that he has overcome the world. And that's where Sunday ends, but the rest of our lives kind of begin. And I don't know about you, but 
Jesus can say that and that could be great, but maybe we look around and we see that the world still seems like it's not quite that defeated. There's, there's evil all over the place. There's evil inside of us. We look around and we can see those forces at work everywhere. And so the question is, how, how does Jesus overcoming the world 2,000 years ago have anything to do with our messed up, broken life that we've got right now? And the awesome answer to that question is that he, he doesn't leave us alone. He, he offers us that same power. How many of you, just give me a quick show of hands here. I didn't do this in the first service. How many of you would like to be able to join Jesus in saying, I have overcome the world, even though maybe it's not totally happened, but you have such confidence that it's set in stone and has long lasting implications. How many of you would like to say that? I have overcome the world, just like Jesus. He gives you that opportunity. He gives us all that opportunity. In the book of Romans chapter 10, the, the author Paul says this, that if you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, I'm sorry, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's what it says in Romans chapter 10. And that word confess, if you confess that Jesus is Lord, that word means to declare something in a way that your life backs up your declaration. Okay, it, that you, you say something and you're going you're gonna to prove it by how you live. And some of you here have, have maybe called yourself a Christian before. You have, you have said that even you believe that Jesus is God, that Jesus rose again from the grave. But if you have stopped short of confessing that Jesus is your Lord and, and backed your life up with that, you're missing out on this power that God has on offer for us. And I love that that Paul says that our confession is that Jesus is Lord. Not that Jesus is God, not that Jesus rose from the grave, but that he is Lord. Because when someone is your Lord, that means they get to tell you what to do. And I think the reason that we have a hesitancy to say that is because at our heart, we don't like people to tell us what to do. Um, anybody else have a problem with authority? Uh, my wife's hand shot up instantly over there. Um, but when, G when we confess to Jesus being our Lord, that means we are actually surrendering our life to him. We give up control. We say, Jesus, you are the one who is my Lord. You are the one who has the right to tell me what is right and wrong. You are the one who would tell me how I should and shouldn't behave because you are the Lord. And I don't know about you, but the guy who called his shot on his own resurrection and pulled it off, that's the one who I want to... I want to serve. That's the one who I want to be my Lord. Nobody else is worthy of that except for that. Whoever can do that. And scripture says, uh, oh, before I move on, I just want to say this because sometimes we get the wrong idea about what it means to follow Jesus. It has nothing to do with you being good enough or doing enough good. Okay, so Jesus offers this freely to us because he knows that none of us can earn it. You don't have to be a good enough person to follow Jesus. You don't have to have your life together to follow Jesus. What you do have to do is surrender. That's it. Jesus wants your broken, messed up world. Jesus wants your, 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 like the darkest part of you. He knows that part of you. And that's why he went to the cross to save that part of you. And so when you do that, when you confess that Jesus is Lord, when you believe in your heart, you have that faith that, that he was actually God, that he came back from the grave. Scripture says the first thing that happens, 
The first thing that happens, everybody who raised their hand who wants to be able to say with Jesus, I have overcome the world, that's the first thing that happens. The book of Romans chapter 6 says that when we profess our faith in him, we get crucified with him. The old self, the, the broken part of us, the sinful part of us gets nailed to the cross with Jesus and dies with him. And when Jesus kicks the door down from that tomb and walks out, we get to walk out with him. That, that old self dies and we get raised to new life, it says in the book of Romans chapter six. So already you've just made the decision to submit to Jesus, to follow him with your life. Already you have conquered death. Good going. But it doesn't stop there. I mean, the, like the grace of Jesus just showering these gifts upon us is unbelievable. He doesn't stop there because it goes on in the book of Romans chapter eight, just a couple chapters later to say that as we follow Jesus, he actually gives us his spirit. And in Romans chapter eight, the spirit that we receive, Paul clarifies, he says, this is the same spirit that rose Jesus from the grave. The same power that brought Jesus out of the grave now gets to live inside of you. And when we get to say in the perfect tense that I have overcome the world, it's not because of my own grit and my determination and effort that I'm just going to, I'm going to, you know, break this addiction or I'm going to stop doing this sin. It, it has nothing to do, once again, with how good we are or how much good we do. It's that power that lives in us through Jesus, through the Holy Spirit. This is how we can overcome the world. And Romans 8 goes on to say that in all of these things, we are more than conquerors. He talks about all these things that could make us afraid. What makes you afraid this morning? He talks about, he talks about famine. He talks about danger. He talks about, uh, about like uh, running out of money, being like financially, um, you know, poor. He talks about all these different things that could make us afraid, these things that motivate decisions that we make. And he says, in all of that stuff, we are more than conquerors through him, through Jesus, the one who loved us. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead empowers you. And what it does is it makes you free and it makes you fearless. Because something, something happened in that upper room. Something happened on that Friday morning where this, this, scaredy, this group of scaredy cats hiding away, worried, all kinds of fears running through their mind. They had a personal encounter with Jesus Christ, the living God, the Messiah. And, and the light bulb went off and it clicked. And the rest of their lives, they were fearless and free. They went through all kinds of things. They went through persecutions of all different sorts, physical abuse. They were beaten within inches of their life. They went to prison and almost all of them went on to die similar, humiliating and gruesome, violent deaths for the sake of Jesus. So what happened? They encountered Jesus. And I don't know if you're here this morning, maybe you don't follow Jesus. Maybe you don't believe in Jesus. Maybe you're here this morning and you, you, you can tell, you know, that your life has kind of gone in a different way than what your declaration uh, that you made. You have an opportunity to, to refocus. You have an opportunity to surrender to Jesus anew, maybe for the first time, maybe for the millionth time and to walk in that power that he gives you. And, you know, I was just thinking about this. I didn't tell the other service this, so this is a, this is a bonus for you guys. The, the Gospel of Luke tells us about these two guys um, that 
are on the road to Emmaus. Maybe you've heard about this road before. Um, And they are walking home. They were followers of Jesus, really excited to see what he was going to do in Jerusalem during the Passover. And they are dejected and just, just hopeless, just heads down, walking home, wondering what they're going to do with the rest of their life. And Jesus shows up like incognito. He's like all disguised himself and he's just talking with them, like seeing what's going on. And he starts to explain the scriptures to them. And eventually they get to this room and, and as Jesus is praying for the meal, their eyes kind of open and they recognize it's him. And as soon as they do, he disappears. I think he went to the upper room to talk to the disciples. But um, the, the whole time they, they look at each other and they're like, was your heart burning in your chest as he was talking about all these things? We're not our hearts just on fire inside of us as we heard this man talk about the scriptures. And I wonder if there are any burning hearts here this morning. If your heart is burning right now, Jesus wants you. He wants you to know him. He wants you to surrender to him because he has something unbelievable in store for you. In John chapter 10, he says, I have come. And the reason I have come is so that you can have life abundantly. I know the end from the beginning. I know where you're at. I know all your secrets. You can't hide it from me, but I know how we can get there. Follow me. Surrender to me. Listen to me. We'll get you on that right path. And so if that's you this morning, I'm going to invite the worship team back up. If that's you this morning, your heart's burning in your chest. You just, you feel like you've got to respond to that. Don't, don't hold back. Okay. As the worship team comes, they're going to be uh, closing in a song. If you need to respond, if you need to do some business with Jesus this morning, I would invite you to, to, to take a second. I'll give you permission not to sing for a little bit, to, to, to pray. Pray in your heart. If, if you want to commit to surrendering to Jesus for the first time, do that. In your, in your part, in your prayer, say, Jesus, I surrender to you. you. I want you to be the Lord of my life because I believe that you can help me overcome the difficulties that I'm facing in my life. If you need to recommit, re-surrender to God, you can do that this morning. As, you, uh, as, we, as we sing this song, I would encourage you to do that business with God, whatever it is. Pray and in your heart to Jesus and, in, and invite that spirit to come and rest inside of you. And then as we go, Remember, it's not you. It's not about how good you can do or what, how hard you can work. The spirit is what empowers us. It's always through him, always through Jesus. So let's pray as we move into this time of worship. Dear Lord, I thank you. I thank you that this was in the works from the very beginning, that, that you had this perfect plan, this perfect tense, that that. Jesus has overcome the world and you have opened up an avenue for us to be able to say that as well, for us to be able to receive that power and say, through Jesus, I have overcome the world. Even though I may not see it, even though I may not feel it, I believe that that is going to happen. It is set in stone and it has long lasting implications. Thank you, Jesus, for coming out of that tomb, for restoring hope, for for proving that you were who you said you were. Lord, I, I pray that we may surrender our lives to you. And as we walk with you, God, would you lead us into that life abundant? We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.